0: I thought I would bring up uh, one of our next tellers is somebody who I think is here to tell a scientific scientific tale named Chris Orban. Are you in the house tonight? Come on up to the stage. Thank you very much. Uh, Can everybody hear me? Um, So thank you, Armani. So I am a physics professor at Ohio State University. I'm a member of the, the Steam Factory. And my background is in astrophysics, which will be very important for the story you're about to hear. Now, I did not initially realize that I had scientifically proven the existence of God. I was expecting some kind of reaction from the crowd after that one. But I'll let, it, I'll let it kind of settle in there. Um, and by the way, I'm going to need a few extra minutes on that. <laughs> but uh, I did not initially realize that I had scientifically proven the existence of God. Someone had to point it out to me. That person was my girlfriend at the time. She's now my wife. you will be happy to know that we got married for reasons unrelated to this story. Uh, but when we started dating in 2008, as all smart women do uh, when they first start dating somebody, they Google their name to see if they're an ax murderer. And, she stumbled across a blog post that someone had written. uh, And when she showed me the blog post, I started laughing hysterically for a solid 10 minutes. Now, why it was so funny and ironic to me, uh, I'll explain before too long. But first, I have to explain that there's a thing called intelligent design. And it is different from young earth creationism. A young earth creationist would say, that the Earth and the universe was created in six literal days. This all happened something like 10,000 years ago. Uh, the Big Bang never happened. Evolution never happened. And this is the, the point of view, for example, of the Creation Museum. So some of you know the Creation Museum uh, is over kind of close to Cincinnati, Ohio, which in the whole scheme of things is not all that far of a drive from here in Columbus, Ohio. Um, but that's the, their perspective. Now, intelligent design, by contrast, would say that the universe began many billions of years ago uh, you know, the Big Bang happened, uh, evolution happened, but the only way that evolution happened the way that it did was through some sort of divine intervention or interference, some kind of super-intelligent meddling in uh, the biological processes on Earth. Now, a lot of times the two points of view gets lumped together because uh, they, not that I'm defending either one, either one of them, but a lot of times they get lumped together because they both kind of assume that The Bible is this kind of scientific treasure map, that if we can just learn how to read it in exactly the right way, it'll be X marks the spot of some scientific gem that might have been uh, difficult, maybe even impossible, to discover otherwise. Now, there's a few prominent pundits in the intelligent design movement. There's uh, Michael Behe, who's a biologist. There's William Dembski, who's a mathematician. And then there's Hugh Ross, who has a background in astrophysics. Uh, And it was Hugh Ross that wrote the blog post uh, that I thought was so remarkable. And part of why it was so remarkable is that he chose to comment on an astrophysics research paper that I had written in 2008. Out of all of the scientific papers, the astrophysics papers that came out in 2008, he chose to comment on my paper. Now Hugh Ross has some serious academic street cred. Uh, he did his PhD in astronomy from the University of Toronto at their very highly respected astronomy department. Following that, he did uh, postdoctoral research at Caltech. So, I don't know if you guys watch the Big Bang Theory show, anybody out there? So, Sheldon Cooper, postdoctoral researcher at Caltech, right? So, out of all of the astrophysics papers that came out in 2008, Hugh Ross chose to comment on my paper. So, what was in that paper? I can explain it in the following way. So, if you If you go to an airport and you plop down $1,000, you can fly yourself to the Southern Hemisphere. And when you look up at the night sky, uh, you will see a Milky Way uh, that's very recognizable. It looks a lot like it does from the Northern Hemisphere. But if you look closely, kind of up above the Milky Way, there'll be these kind of two milky, starry kind of uh, wisps of a thing that are up there. And those are the Large Magellanic Cloud and the Small Magellanic Cloud. And they're very pretty to see. I highly recommend the site, I've seen it with my own eyes, it's very pretty. Um, And what those are, those are two smallish galaxies that are close to the Milky Way. Now if you're sitting here and you're saying, well this isn't fair, why do I have to fly to the southern hemisphere to see these cool looking things? Well, it may come as a comfort to you to know that when people like me run computer simulations of what happens after the Big Bang, when everything is expanding away from everything else, uh, but nevertheless, gravity is making the clumpy parts of the universe you know, more clumpy, forming galaxies. Uh, those simulations say that instead of having one or two of these galaxies, we should have more like four or five. And odds are, at least one of them should be in the Northern Hemisphere. So you shouldn't have to pay $1,000 to go and see them. So you know, why don't we see more of these galaxies? There's kind of two schools of thought. And my paper kind of adopted one of the schools of thought. And I'll get to the proving of the existence of God before too long. Uh, But, you know, one school of thought is that star formation is this inherently complex process that we don't understand. Something is preventing the stars from forming in the galaxies. If the stars don't form, we don't see the galaxies because we see the galaxies through starlight. The other possibility, the other school of thought, is that something more fundamental is going on. And maybe there's something about particle physics that we didn't understand before. And this observation, this discrepancy, is one of the few things that's pointing us towards a deeper understanding. Now, my paper took the first approach. And so we had our simulation for what happens after the Big Bang. We had a model for how the stars might form in that simulation. And we kicked around that model and see, to see if there are there reasonable things that we can do to kind of you know, harmonize the observations with you know, how many galaxies we actually see in the sky. And we found that there were, you know, there were a couple of reasonable things that you could do. So the conclusion of the paper is that you don't need to change the nuts and bolts of the Big Bang to explain this, you just need to kind of tighten the screws. Now Hugh Ross took the conclusion of our paper and he said, well, what these people have done is they put the theory of the Big Bang on a firmer foundation, which has helped to validate the Genesis account. Because uh, on the first day of creation in the book of Genesis, it says, God says, let there be light. And the first phase of the Big Bang is, is often called the radiation dominated era. It would not be a stretch to call this era the light dominated era and in fact the cosmic microwave background if you've heard of that is the light from the light dominated era um, and so by putting the big bang on a firmer theoretical foundation we helped to validate the Genesis account and in so doing we helped to prove the existence of God so there you have it <laughs> finally we've reached the climax of the talk that was a mouthful um, so there's a flaw in this argument or if a flaw okay so first of all it's not a very accurate reading of the history of cosmology if you go back to when the Big Bang model was initially proposed you know it is not as if all of the Christians and theists lined up straight behind it uh, supporting it you know again this is before all the data was in that we have now of you know what's what in the universe and it's not as if you know everybody else sort of lined up behind the competing theories most of which assumed that the universe was infinitely old so for example Sir Arthur Eddington was a Christian, and he thought that the universe was infinitely old. He thought the mathematics describing it was more elegant, things like that. He thought it was more consistent with his, real, his religious and philosophical convictions. So kind of the opposite of what uh, Hugh Ross was saying. And the other flaw in this argument is that if it, if it seems awkward to discuss science in the context of validating sacred Sacred you know religious and theological texts like the book of Genesis if, if that feels awkward that's because it is awkward That's it would be very strange for science to operate in such a way where we're anxiously awaiting each You know new piece of data about the universe to try to validate you know this text or another text uh, You know about religious religion and theology and things like that that That's not how science operates. That's not really how science should operate now the real reason why I thought the blog post was so uh, astounding was that I used to read Hugh Ross books when I was in college, because I grew up in conservative Christian circles. And Hugh Ross's books were one of the few places where he was trying to, to mesh together kind of scientific reasoning and religious reasoning all at the same time. So one of the things he says in his books is you know, maybe in the book of Genesis, when it observes that the human lifespan kind of got shorter, uh, maybe that's telling us that there was a supernova that happened in 10,000 BC and the radiation levels went up with the Earth and the human lifespan shortened or something like that. And regardless of how speculative of a thing that is, he was trying to mesh together the scientific and religious kind of way of thinking in a way that I just had not seen in other places. Um, and I even bought 10 copies of the books and I would give it to my atheist friends, you know, to try to show them like, you know, you know, <laughs> scientific thinking and religious thinking are not diametrically opposed and of course it didn't do any good I mean if there's a person already leaning towards atheism giving them a book by an intelligent design advocate is not going to change their mind about anything um, but this was an important phase of my life that I don't often get to, to tell people about now um, now why am I telling you this story uh, I think the, the best way to explain it is through the science fair and maybe there's booze in the audience I don't know the science fair, but I love the science fair. I did the science fair every year when I was a kid. Uh, I did international science fair. Um, I loved it, uh, and nowadays I have the opportunity to be a science fair judge. And one of the things I noticed is that sometimes the students from Christian schools will have a Bible verse written on their science fair board. And you know, before you start, you know, Facebook complaining about it, it's usually something that's pretty innocuous. I mean, it, one of one of them is. Uh, greater the works of the Lord those who ponder them will delight in them so which in the whole scheme of Bible verses is nothing really to right home about uh, so so the the real concern is that the fact that those verses are there at all seems to uh, can seems to point to a fear on the parts of parents and teachers that just doing science without Bible verses plastered everywhere will lead their kids towards atheism and whenever I see that I just want to go over to those kids and you know grab them by the shoulders and look them straight in the eye and say, I've taken all the physics classes. There is no unit on how the laws of physics strongly suggest that God doesn't exist. Okay, that's not 100% true, all right? So just hear me out. This is between just in this room, Okay. So there is a unit on quantum mechanics that is very near and dear to my heart that says we should all be existentialists. I'm not going to pretend like that's not there, okay? But that's the part that religious people love, east and west. So we're all grown-ups here. I'm not trying to change anybody's minds about anything, but what what I am trying to say is that in the wider discussion that we have as a society of the kinds of obstacles that kids encounter when they consider a career in science, I do not often hear religion being discussed in that context. It just seems like There isn't any place for those kids to go to have these kinds of discussions. So in summary, uh, don't ask me to be a science fair judge, unless you're in for an interesting day. Uh, And if someone comes to believe that your research study helps to prove the existence of God, tell the story. Thank you. Wow, man, (laughs) aw, thanks for classing it up.